This is Portraits of a New Normal, a series of podcasts from Annenberg Radio News about how we're coping with our new realities during the pandemic. I'm Valeria Diaz. I'm Johnny Dorsal. And I'm Fernando Cienfuegos. Isn't it crazy how new normal is over a year old? Time has really flown by since the start of this pandemic. Yeah, definitely. And it's even crazier how so many things have happened during this past year. Oh, for sure. From COVID-19 to events that have impacted students here on campus, the news is never ending. Let's check out some of the narratives that have been driving our new normal. As the New Year's countdown ended and the world received 2021 with open arms, several new developments regarding COVID have happened around the world, from increasing vaccine availability to several states reopening. In LA, many people are familiar with COVID vaccination sites at Dodger Stadium, UCLA, UC Keck Medical Center, among others. But among these, there are many unsung heroes in the fight against COVID, many of whom work in community clinics. Ray Han profiled one doctor fighting to make sure that his clinic and its community get its fair share of vaccines. At Kedron Community Health Center in South Los Angeles, people camp out in hopes of rolling up their sleeves to get vaccinated. The line to the tent snakes through the parking lot and goes down for several blocks. Fighting the epidemic is not easy, but Kedron knows crisis. It was born of crisis, says its director of vaccines, Dr. Jerry P. Abraham. Kedron, the little Kedron that could, this historically black institution that was started in the 1960s during the Watts riots by 22 black psychiatrists who, when their community, particularly black people in mental health crisis, had nowhere else to turn, that's when Kedron started. That's who we are. It's ingrained in our DNA. It's ingrained in our genetics here. Uh, we do a lot with very little. We have to be the safe haven, this safe harbor in our community. And never more than now fighting COVID. But last year when the COVID vaccine was first approved, Abraham had a hard time getting it for his community. Los Angeles County health officials somehow overlooked little Kedron. So I think everybody thought somebody else had us on their list and we were on honestly, ultimately no one's list and we had no vaccines. A week went by and still no vaccines for his staff or the community. Finally, around Christmas time, Dr. Abraham knew he had to take action to make things happen. So I picked up the phone, I started making calls, I started knocking on doors, and one phone call led to another door, led to doors opening. So Abraham got in a van with some of the staff who work at his clinic. They drove down to the Los Angeles County Department of Public Health. And we knocked on doors and went to the warehouse and said, we're not going home until we get some. He waited and persisted. And we finally left with 100 doses. That was just the start. Dr. Abraham and his staff went back again and again to make sure the people in their community got the doses they deserved. And we literally had to do that because we kept running out. So we'd like go and be like, hey, we used everything you gave us. We used everything you gave us. Eventually, Dr. Abraham got Kedron on a distribution list so it would receive its supply the same way the larger vaccination sites around Los Angeles get theirs. Abraham says COVID has made the inequalities in America much more apparent, but this has only made him more determined than ever to work for justice and equal health care for all. We hear people ask us, why did we do it? And there really was never a question. It was, we have no choice. We must. We won't stop. We can't stop until we know that our brothers and sisters, our mothers, our fathers, our grandparents, our children are safe from COVID. And that's what keeps us going every day. Now, with Kedron receiving a steady supply of the vaccine, they've even created a mobile fleet to take care of those who might have a hard time getting to the clinic. The little Kedron that could has already administered about 100,000 doses of the vaccine. Dr. Abraham and his team will keep up the good fight to help their community get what it deserves. For Annenberg Media, I'm Ray Hong. As vaccine rollout increases state by state, some government officials have released their lockdown restrictions, one of them being in Texas. It has caused many retail workers to reflect on their time working during the pandemic and how they felt yet again their health is being underprioritized. Leanna Villarreal explains. Hello. 20-year-old Kiana Carrillo works at a H-E-B grocery store in Houston. She's a personal shopper for curbside pickup and spends her time shopping for customers. 
She says she loves her job, but once the pandemic hit, it brought on new challenges she didn't see coming. Scared of being sick and like just coming home and bringing that to like my grandparents. It's just like I was scared to go into work. I was scared for my life, I would say. HEB enforced the mask requirement mandated by the state, but she was worried about all the hours she spent walking up and down the aisles with other customers, who didn't always stay six feet apart. We did get hazard paid at that time, so we had a couple extra bucks um, to our pay, which was nice, I guess. But depending on the person, it's just like, is it really that worth it to you? Your, your life, your overall safety, and like mental health for two extra dollars? The situation became so overwhelming, Garillo ended up taking some time off. But I definitely had to take a mental health break because of that. Just feeling like you weren't cared for, or like, at least appreciated, at least, for all your hard work. It just insulted my, like, I guess, self-worth, you know? Like, I'm, I'm, I'm a person just like you guys shopping around. <laughs> Rosine Pazenzi knows exactly what Carillo's talking about. She worked as a cashier at Burlington Coat Factory for nearly half a year in 2020. She says the rules for wearing masks in sanitizing work areas relaxed. There were some who just came in, didn't wear a mask, and then um, got to the register. And then there were some who, um, they would have their mask, but not have it over their mouth or nose or anything. They would just like have it under their chin or something. It just defeats the purpose of the whole thing. But Pazenzi says it wasn't just customers who violated safety protocols. She says management didn't always follow through with the policies it put in place. There were kind of like a row of tables on the side of the customer. That way it was a good like space between me and the customer. And I really, I felt safer with that there. But then like after literally like three weeks, they took those tables off and it was, it kind of didn't make sense. Pazenzi says she raised the issue with management, but nothing happened. Eventually she just quit. And now in March of this year, all businesses of any type are allowed to open 100%. Also, I am ending the statewide mask mandate. Texas Governor Greg Abbott made the announcement March 2nd, and a week later, Texas became one of the first states to lift all restrictions. This has folks like Carillo worried. Just the fact that they have the law behind their back is justifying them for inactions of putting, in, putting on a mask. Carillo says HEB is doing everything it can to ensure the safety of their employees, like sanitizing the store every hour and still requiring customers to wear masks. But she's quick to add, she doesn't think that the state lifting all restrictions was the right thing to do. She feels it puts workers' health and safety at risk. So when government officials like do stuff like that, it's just like, it's a joke. I mean, <laughs> it's a joke. Most of the people that are affected are um, people they don't care about, which is like, you know, low income, minority speaking, like, those are the people most likely to be affected by all of this anyways, so these people just can't afford to not work. Now, despite these changes, remember this. Removing state mandates does not end personal responsibility or the importance of caring for your family members and caring for your friends and caring for others in your community. Personal responsibility has been central to this pandemic, yet when customers disregard this notion, Carillo believes, it's the retail workers that end up being impacted the most, both mentally and health-wise. And she has this advice. You know, have a little more compassion for other people and their health, so you're not the only one that's in the store. <laughs> that's really it, that's all I ask. If you could just like wear a mask, keep six feet, you know, that, that's totally cool. It's simple. Do your part, acknowledge others, especially retail workers. Have a great day, okay? For Annenberg Media, I'm Leanna Villarreal. The pandemic has also brought several other issues alongside the COVID cases and its death toll. One of the main problems that was exacerbated by the pandemic was a rise in anti-Asian American hate crimes. Hate crimes against Asian Americans have more than doubled since COVID came to the U.S. and has been made worse by political voices such as our former president and the news media. Many Asian Americans believe the U.S. media doesn't report enough on this story in order to uplift their voices. 
Phoebe Jen reports on one USC student who's been directly impacted by Asian American discrimination. Growing up in Orange County, California in the 2000s could be considered an all-American childhood, right? Well, that is indeed the case. Yi-An Lee felt right at home there. I didn't ever feel very aware of my Asian identity because everyone else looked like me. So she didn't feel Asian American discrimination, let alone hatred. I I think I kind of took advantage of the fact that I was in a safe space for a lot of people and I and we had shared experiences as like Asian people in the community. Um, I was never insecure about any like aspects of my Asian identity because as far as I knew, that's what the vast majority of people around me were like as well. But things took a turn when she moved to a predominantly white neighborhood, not even far away, and still in Orange County. At school, she realized she looked different. It was rare to find a head of black hair in a sea of blondes and browns, and for the first time in her life, Lee understood what it means in America to be a minority. A lot of my habits and a lot of like my like aspects of my culture, how I lived, was very different from everyone around me, and that's when the insecurity started building, was that awareness that I'm not quote-unquote normal. So she began to question where she belonged in this new social setting. All throughout high school, the labels continued, fueling her insecurities and ultimately discrediting her hard work and achievements. Feeling ashamed that I was Asian, wishing that I wasn't a good student because so many people kind of slapped that label of like, you're Asian, so you have to be good. And it kind of invalidated all of my efforts as well because people would just assume that I was good at things just because I was Asian. At USC, Lee studies psychology and she founded the Dear Asian Youth Chapter, a youth-led global organization that uses intersectional activism to empower and celebrate the Asian American Pacific Islander community. She avidly uses social media platforms like Instagram to bring awareness to the rising rate of crimes and discrimination against Asian Americans. I shouted for help, but uh, this nobody shows me. So Asians in this country Asian have indeed been increasingly targeted. In the growing outcry to stop the hate. A study released by the Center for the Study of Hate and Extremism at California State University, San Bernardino, shows anti-Asian American hate crimes increased last year by nearly 150%. New York and California saw the greatest increases. Many of the victims were women and elderly Asian Americans. Cynthia Che is a co-executive director of Chinese for Affirmative Action based in San Francisco. It's a painful time. Um, it's, it's a painful time, traumatic time. I think it's led to a tremendous amount of fear, especially for our vulnerable members of our community. Che says more immediate attention is crucial to combat the violence and hatred. In terms of incidents, many, many years of, of an anti-immigrant climate have led you know, the community to be frustrated, angry, and fearful. To have more visibility on this issue is, is really critical so that we can respond to what's happening. Despite what the media has covered so far, USC fine arts student Alexander Ye, a coordinator for the Critical Issues in Race, Class, and Leadership Education Group, remains skeptical of the media's narrative. He adds that it's crucial for APEDA to do this without downplaying the struggles of any other community. APEDA stands for American Pacific Islander Desi Americans, a pan-ethnic classification that intentionally includes South Asians. I wouldn't say that I would rely on the media to advocate for the for APEDA folks. I personally would rely a lot more on just like um, like grassroots movements and organizations because I think I would honestly trust their energy more and their paths forward um, than a media that might be trying to either sanitize the story or which is even worse, like divide other communities with it. Lee agrees and expresses her disappointment in large news media outlets that she feels are failing to recognize and uplift Asian voices during this critical time. Countless victims have been assaulted. I think it's, I, I don't know, I think it's pretty upsetting that, you know, like the most vulnerable demographic in the Asian community has had to die before a few smaller news media sources has felt like maybe we should talk about this. We, we need the major news media sources to be talking about this to gain enough traction to be able to actually educate people adequately enough to make, you know, change. A change that's long overdue, says Yian Li. The Asian community has been, you know, crying for help for a long time now. As much as it pains me to say this, because of like, you know, like the systems of oppression that have been built into this country, 
we need more than just the Asian community to speak up about this and to stand in solidarity and to show their support. So how do we combat the hatred and provide a safe and welcoming space for Asians and Asian Americans? How do we do so in a way that doesn't downplay the experiences of other communities of color? This begins with encouraging conversations amongst peers and family, especially if you aren't a part of the Asian community. Not only showing your solidarity by a simple repost on your Instagram story, but by extending your outreach and resources to those who need that support. For Annenberg Media, I'm Phoebe Chen. Hate crimes against Asian Americans are up. Now, we're going to hear a story about the experience of one Asian American student at USC. Here's Juliana Berlin with the story. Jennifer Lee is a pre-law student who is passionate about creating a more equitable world after seeing injustices in her community while growing up in Queens, New York. The recent rise in anti-Asian American hate has reinforced this and taken an enormous toll on her. It's definitely been like media fatigue and just like social media scrolling fatigue where you see another hate crime and you're just like, you feel like you cannot be tired, right? Because like this stuff is happening. She wishes it mattered to more people. You're exhausted mentally from like trying to like, again, like beg people to care. But then you realize that there's only so much you can handle yourself as well. Her own family has experienced hate. Lee wonders if it's because they're Asian American. My dad, somebody had thrown like a glass bottle on his car while he was in the car. Um, Terrifying. Especially when it happens near home. When you attack people in communities where they feel safe, right? That is the scariest part. Mistreatment occurs in a variety of ways, but tracking hate crime is difficult when people don't know if they are being targeted because they're Asian American. Natalie Masuoka teaches political science and Asian American studies at UCLA. I think uh, experiencing a hate act is something that's really difficult empirically to really understand truly what's happening. Because I think, you know, generally what we do know is that when someone has experienced mistreatment, discrimination, or harassment, oftentimes people don't necessarily want to report that to have happened to them. Masuoka says this is one of the challenges in studying discrimination. That oftentimes individuals don't really necessarily always define what happened to them. They, they understand that what has happened to them is upsetting and is something that they, of course, don't want, you know, they don't want to happen to others. But what, to what extent that they actually would assign it as something attributed to systemic racial discrimination is another matter. There's a lot of studies right now where Asian Americans, their mental health has deteriorated so much. Cynthia Choi is the co-founder of Stop AAPI Hate. That's a site for reporting hate acts and crimes. I mean, it's, it's stratospheric in terms of the mental health crisis that our community is in. There's like all these studies right now about how racism, the impact of it is weathering. So it just like slowly eats at you every day. <laughs> and it has this compounding effect. Microaggressions add up. They amplify the feeling of being an outsider in America. Being a person of color, it's like, <laughs> it would be dumb to say that you don't experience racism just like sporadically or on a daily basis, just in the form of, you know, microaggressions or any just like feeling of othering. You know, it's it's very uh, common in very often not direct ways, but there's def- it's always definitely really obvious that you're living the life of somebody who is not like white in America. Lee says taking care of mental health is crucial right now. So lots of recharge time I think is necessary. And then reminding myself that like, even though the solutions aren't automatic and racism is never gonna solve itself, as long as you don't give up and you just continuously like taking the information, taking the news and try your best to, to to, to use tangible solutions to make a difference then it will be okay eventually. For Annenberg Media, I'm Juliana Berlin. The effects of the pandemic have also been felt by the Trojan community. As USC is looking to reopen its doors to students in fall of 2021, there are several stories that highlight how this new normal is going for the community so far. 
Over one year ago, the world went quiet with the onslaught of COVID-19. But as Abby Martichenko reports, the persistent home of Greek life parties and gatherings revealed some students' detachment from COVID consequences. Nineteen-year-old Sydney Ahmed is a sophomore at USC majoring in music industry and minoring in legal studies. She's a proud part of the sorority Gamma Phi. On a typical day, you could find her spending time with her friends from the sorority. But COVID shut everything down. This meant no more in-person mixers, chapter meetings, group dinners, or parties. Like the rest of the university, everything shifted to online. But this hasn't stopped her from feeling supported and uplifted. I was thinking about the way that we pretty much got stripped of all the like traditional things that everybody loves about like Greek life, like the social stuff, you know, the in-person like, you know, chapter dinners and like meetings and all the fun activities. But like what we were left with was, you know, being able to like only like talk to each other and like support each other. And we have, you know, all these group chats and our Zooms and stuff, obviously. Sydney says she's grateful that her sorority has followed health and safety guidelines while still providing a strong support system. But for Sydney and other students, it's hard to ignore that not all Greek life has shut down. In fact, she says many fraternity and sorority members are continuing to gather at off-campus housing sites, party buses, and even event venues. This, despite the risks these gatherings pose and the fact that the university doesn't condone it. I know a big thing is that like, like a concern that some sororities that are being stricter are having is that like, oh, these girls that just joined ours are, you know, roommates with girls who rushed a different one or they know people and they're like, they are sitting at home on a Friday night and they hear their roommate be like, oh, you know, my sorority, I have a mixer tonight. Like, I'm going to go to that. Like, see you later. Like, have fun at home. And they're getting, like, we obviously know the reason that we don't do it and the risks, but it's kind of like, a little bit of FOMO or like jealousy, like, oh, maybe I shouldn't have joined this sorority that's stricter, like maybe I'm missing out. Many college students are feeling the burnout of long-term isolation from friends and campus life, and the allure to gather with friends is strong. But as Giacomo Green, who co-runs an Instagram page called Abolish Greek Life USC says, the impact of these parties have real consequences. Even at USC, um... Uh, our sort of director of health, Dr. Sarah Van Orman, back in August, managed to trace back um, our, one of our big student outbreaks to, to fraternities. In August, the New York Times published an article titled, Frats are being frats, Greek life is stoking the virus on some campuses. The article referenced the two outbreaks that Orman and USC administrators traced back to fraternity houses. She didn't name the two, um, but the fact that she could, I think, gives gives light to the fact that um, that the, these you know sort of large fraternal gatherings you know lead to increased transmission of COVID, which makes intuitive sense if you think about the way that fraternities operate. Green talked about the lack of consequences for fraternity houses that have been linked to parties and COVID outbreaks. From his perspective, the university isn't motivated to hold some students accountable. You know, I think it's safe to say that there's a relationship of kind of like university having a laissez-faire approach, you know, like um, they really don't want to get involved. Um, and I think the reason for this is pretty simple. He thinks the reason is simple. It comes down to money. The more that uh, the university cracks down on Greek life, um, the less donation money they get. Um, you know, the students that graduate that have participated in Greek life are overwhelmingly contribute the amount of alumni donations. Um, so it's within financial interest of the school not to alter its relationship with Greek life. I reached out to different departments at USC over several weeks for their reply to Giacomo's statement, but no one got back to me. There are avenues students can use to report unsafe behavior. Students can report it to the university or the International Greek Life Council. But often, peer pressure stops many students from saying anything. Or when they do, the action taken is too little and too late, Sydney says. If someone has gotten, a house has gotten reported, sometimes it takes internationals or USC or whoever, like months later, and then they'll be like, oh, here's this like punishment thing for something that happened months ago. So it's like, it could be coming down the line later. Like, it's hard to judge the timeline, but like, 
it is, it's a little frustrating to not be seeing results right now. I reached out to the USC Panhellenic Council to ask about what systems they have in place to limit gatherings and parties. I received a response from the president who asked to know more about the nature of the interview. After sending two follow-up emails, I never heard back. Basically, I get it because everybody's here and all your friends are here and it's getting warmer out and classes are ending. But the end is seemingly in sight. With the vaccination rollout and in-person classes approaching, Sydney hopes that students can be responsible now so that hopes of a normal college experience can become a reality next fall. And you want to have that part of college that we've been missing for this whole year, um, but we're really close, so we might as well just try to stay safe and get out of it so we can do it for real. For Annenberg Media, I'm Abby Martachinko. COVID-19 has led to many challenges and changes in the lives of student athletes. Beyond new protocols and restrictions, athletes have had to re-examine what it means to be an athlete as they adjust to their careers in the midst of a global pandemic. Rachel Grode reports. It took Billy Fonelroy a full year to play with the USC men's volleyball team. But when he got there, life made good sense to him. And then one day, his coach announced that COVID had hit, the season would be suspended, and the future was uncertain. It came with a lot of confusion, and that confusion, when we heard we had a season, still, you know, it's still coming to this day. We're still, you know, there's still new things happening, and, you know, now that the vaccine's out, who knows? Imagine having to play a grueling volleyball match, sweating and in a mask. That was the reality Billy had to face in order to return to the sport that he loves. The lack of air ventilation with the mask on made it increasingly challenging for him to breathe while playing. You know, we've adapted. We've, while it's very much so not ideal, uh, I don't know, maybe our cardio has gone up because of it, but it's, it's, it's not ideal. We, you know, we're making the most of it. We're just happy to still have a season. The bubble might be the safest place for USC athletes. Strange as it is, USC water polo athlete Kelsey McIntosh is scared about what could come next. The unknown is a big question mark for a lot of people, but I also knew that USC, my coaching staff, my trainer, um, and anybody at USC that would be saying, you guys can come back and train, they wouldn't be putting us in a situation that would put us in harm. Um, I truly felt coming back to SC was the safest place to be. As a center on the football team, Brett Nealon lines up right in front of the opposing center, both breathing hard, both ready to bang into each other. That has its issues even before COVID. Now, without precaution, it'd be really risky. Brett Nealon is apprehensive about playing during COVID, but he's glad to be back. So when I first heard that we're playing in a shortened season, it was a mixed emotions. Like it was excitement that, you know, we're going back, we get to work out with the team, we get to actually play games. Um, you know, we thought it was canceled. We thought the season was lost. In the face of adversity and unprecedented times, Billy and his teammates have done whatever they can to play the sport that they love. You know, you really don't have a choice because when push comes to shove, you know, we're still being given the chance to play the sport that we love at such a high level. So we were willing to do whatever it, it would take to play without a mask. For Annenberg Media, that was Rachel Grode. A key part of college education is a one-on-one, in-person instruction, none of which is possible during a pandemic. So in this COVID year two, what have we learned about online school? Are students getting their money's worth? Is the cost of online school worth it? And as Kara Wester finds out, might it depend on what you're studying? There are certain disciplines we study that really require us to meet in person. The very essence of theater is a shared experience, says sophomore theater major Olivia Trost. Act. And I think something that's so beautiful about theater is being in a room with people. You know, that's why people go to the theater. It's so that they can be surrounded by others and watch like a live performance right in front of them. That's not what her classes were this year. No, like nearly all majors and all classes at USC, they tried to teach theater online. So it was heartbreaking for me at first. And it definitely was taking a toll on my mental health and taking a toll kind of on like how excited I was to go to class. I used to always like, wake up and just be so excited to go to my theater classes even if it was an 8 a.m you know I would like be walking there it would be like a 
pretty far walk, but I would do it because I was just so excited to be with people. Now her walk is from her bedroom to her living room, and the only person who might be there is her one roommate. At least she's not alone. But that also makes it hard to learn, like when her teacher started a common theater exercise. In my one acting class, we were doing a vocal warm up, and he was like having a scream. And like my roommate was asleep because it's an 8 a.m. class. And so obviously we're on mute. So I was like pretending to scream because I really didn't want to wake up my roommate. And that was just the funniest thing ever because I was looking at myself on the Zoom camera with like my mouth open, like, but I was not screaming. A fitting image to describe how surreal this whole year has been. Maybe at times this year, we all feel like we're screaming and nobody can hear us, including when we pay the high cost of tuition and only get online learning. It is, it's been very, very hard. Kim Hirabashi studies college student development and teaches at the Rossier School of Education at USC. You know, it, this has just been a, a really tough year and it's hard seeing students. And so where possible in our programs and in my teaching, I try to give students just a lot of grace. It's really hard. It's about a very holistic understanding of, we need you to be well. Um, and let's try and bring that anxiety and that stress level just to a manageable place because it's just so hard. As hard as this year has been, Hirabashi says from what she has seen and heard from other faculty, great learning has taken place. And she believes the cost of tuition can be worth it for online learning. I think if anything, this experience has taught us that there is value in, in taking classes online, that you can still learn, right? And that you can still be engaged um, with your faculty members um, in, in classes and um, you can still focus on that content. Actually, I think it's, it's going to help us con continue to consider ab about the value and about the access. And for most of you, it's not gonna show up anywhere on your transcripts that you did an online program, right? Um, so if anything, I think it's still about the quality of that education, whether it is online or in person. You know, did you have faculty who inspired you, who engaged you, right? Did you have um, you know, the ability to still connect with the content and experts in the field. And do you still feel prepared, right, to take on the world when you're done and to achieve your professional goals? But I really did want a traditional college experience. And I really did feel like there was so much for me to learn. So in that manner, I do feel like I'm still fully prepared. And I think that if I do take that extra semester and keep pushing myself, I will be able to have that same education and that same fighting chance to go out to the real world and like pursue this career. The teachers are doing their very best, but it is also a lot harder to learn on Zoom and some of them aren't as effective, uh, you know, at portraying their knowledge uh, across online platforms. Sophomore Armand Banner studies business at USC. I, we're definitely not getting, um, the, the money we're paying is too high for, for college in general. Um, let alone the online format. I think that college, when we get back into like a normal semester, I think it completely lives up to what I expected it to be. But, um, you know, the COVID environment and the Zoom environment is not, um, not exact, no, not, it's just not, it's just not college uh, or what we would have thought or expected it to be. Um, it's kind of scary, honestly, that I've only been on campus one semester that I'm about to be a junior in a couple months. So if a student had to say what percentage of full tuition online learning should cost, what would it be? Theater major Olivia Trost says she's glad she's at USC during this very strange year, but it's not worth full price. I have grown, but there's only so much that you can do sitting on a computer, just like staring into the virtual abyss. And so I would say that rather than a full price tuition, I would like monetarily value this past year and say that it would be fair to say that it was worth two thirds of the price. And so she continues her exercises, taking a movement class online and getting a lot out of it. But she knows if the class were in person, her teacher would be much more able to offer her helpful feedback. He asked the class to pretend to be an animal in the jungle, and there she is. It's just her in her kitchen, her camera propped up. She's crawling around the floor, pretending to be a tiger. Maybe we all feel like animals in the jungle this year. While the world waits to return to normal, we're forced to look at what we're left with while we wait. Is the price of online school worth it? Not according to the students, but with the teachers and students doing their best, it's the greatest alternative we could have. For Annenberg Media, 
That was Kara Westra. USC made the choice to replace spring break with five wellness days spread throughout the spring 2021 semester and states minimizing the risk of spreading coronavirus through travel as the reason, provoking concerns over mental health. Sophia Sue has more on how students are feeling about this change. Johnny Kamakian is a sophomore. He's from LA and transferred into USC last fall. He's pretty relaxed. His Zoom background is palm trees swaying in the breeze. And he likes to DJ when he can. And to study, he puts on hippie sabotage. But his majors are computer science and business, tough subjects that mean a lot of work. He says when spring break is a week or so off, he can chill. But a day off here and there, even if you call them wellness days, they're not going to work. They tell you to relax and not worry about the work, but I'm gonna be working because I still kind of behind and if you don't work, you feel bad, like, oh, I wasted this day kind of relaxing and I have this much to do ahead of me, so I should do my work now. And doing his work could ironically be made more difficult by the wellness days because USC is shut down. Because we don't have access to the tutors or to the professor at all that day. So it's kind of more detrimental. USC shuts down so students are less likely to work during wellness days. Dr. Kelly Greco is USC's Assistant Director of Outreach and Prevention Services. I do worry that students are going to just, oh, it's just one day, you know, I'll, I'll spend half the day studying. And so it's really important that we unplug and that we hit pause for that day, because that is what the day is intended for. No classes and really standing back from our work and focusing on rejuvenating ourselves. Another USC sophomore, Prisanna Danner, is an art history major and communication design minor in Roski. She's from New Jersey and wants to work as a museum curator. COVID just like has like effects on our mental health that we like just don't even really know why. So I think I've definitely been feeling a lot of that. I don't agree with taking away spring break. I think that spring break was like really helpful and I think that's like a moment where you actually won't have to think about an assignment. You kind of still have to think about an assignment if you're just having the one day off. Some USC administrators say the spread out wellness days might be even better than a consecutive week off for spring break to reduce student stress. Dr. Eden Aganaffer is a clinical psychologist at USC. Yes, it's spread out, but that's actually helpful instead of having it all at once and feeling like there isn't a lot of planning involved. Um, and so each time you get that day, it's how can you be more intentional in connecting with yourself, with your body, uh, with people, so that um, it feels like you're getting some kind of break during the spring semester. USC is not the only school to cancel spring break. Universities such as Harvard and Yale also opted during this year of COVID restrictions to schedule one-day breaks. But despite the advice of USC administrators, Johnny Kamakian, the sophomore comp science business major, can't fully relax on a wellness day. His workload is too much. I think, especially for my major, it's a lot. And it's interesting how certain classes give you a lot of work compared to others. When spring break got canceled, to him, it meant taking no time off. Definitely put me in more of like a long call state of mind where there's not really any breaks until the end of the semester. If you're not going to take the day off, Dr. Kelly Greco suggests what she calls the three P's. It's practice, prioritize practice and plan of action. We start small. So sometimes it's like, I have to work out for an hour. And it's like, no, let's get out and do a five minute walk. Let's do a two minute meditation on USC Mindful app. You know, let me watch Netflix for 15 minutes, take a cognitive break in between classes. All good advice, but for Johnny Kamakian, it's more books, more coding, and of course, more hippie sabotage. Anything resembling a week off is going to have to wait, at least until the end of the semester. If we just had a spring break, there'd be no homework done that day and it would be more clear instead of something like this. And don't forget to seek out mental health services whenever you need them. You don't have to wait for breaks. For Annenberg Media, I'm Sophia Sue.
Since the transition to online learning last year, university students and staff have learned the pros and cons of Zoom as a learning and teaching platform. To get a closer look at online school's impact on the USC community, Chloe Lewis spoke to professors and faculty to hear their takes. Years ago, the so-called Dean of Counterculture Comedians, George Carlin, had a bit about oxymorons. A few more oxymorons. Mandatory option. Mutual differences. Non-dairy creamer. What about online learning? For the past 10 years, Neil Teixeira has helped to develop online master's degree programs for the University of Southern California's Annenberg School. If anyone was prepared for a mass transition to online learning, it was him. Despite his expertise and role as the director of online learning for Annenberg, even he couldn't have predicted how such an involved community would adapt to the online learning platform. No, I didn't really think that there would be a moment where USC became a fully online virtual school. It just wasn't really part of the DNA of USC, given how vibrant our campus life is, to transition that way. The pandemic made that a necessity. I would say that students, faculty, and staff alike, the greatest challenge we faced during this pandemic has been feelings of isolation, feelings of being apart from our normal people. But Tashera believes there are some positive takeaways from the year online. Faculty, students, staff have seen a new way of doing business. And for the vast majority, they've seen how effective it can be. And, and this includes students with some learning disabilities. Online learning is actually a godsend um, that this technology mediated platform can provide better results for them uh, than traditional face-to-face -face learning. We spoke to Annenberg professor Jeffrey Cowan to hear about his experience teaching online. Despite his positive perspective, Cowan says that there are certain aspects to in-person teaching that cannot be replicated on Zoom. I personally work quite hard at trying to make it a great experience for students. Um, I think there are some benefits, but I think that in the end they're outweighed by the fact that students just aren't as engaged. Yeah, no matter what the class is, you don't have the same connectedness or immediacy. Professor Hernan Galperin, whose expertise and studies focus on digital inequality, shares similar sentiments. I would say that one of the main challenges on, online is it's very difficult to get a proper feedback. All the research shows that it's it's much better when, when students learn in, in different in, in other ways, not just hearing a, a professor lecture. So in, interactivity and feedback are crucial when you're trying to do that, but that is a challenge on an online environment. While many members of the university's community eagerly await a return to campus life, Neil Teixeira's role as the director of online learning means he must remain invested in the medium. In his eyes, the future of online learning is bright and has potential to offer vast opportunities for a greater range of students. It's certainly not as good as it will get. Uh, online learning is continuously evolving and it's really just a component of learning. And for some students, and I'm thinking that there are students whose physical location for their, their unique characteristics they may not be able to engage in face-to-face -face traditional residential education at USC, but online makes a lot of sense for them. I think the silver lining in all of this is that we have learned how much we can adapt. We have learned how resilient we are as a people and as Trojans, as a community at Annenberg of scholars and students and staff. Whether it was awfully amazing or amazingly awful, we've all found a way to make the last year of Zoom University work. We can all look forward to a return to the excitement and energy of on-campus life in the fall. For Annenberg Media, I'm Chloe Lewis. Despite a troublesome start of the year for many, this has not stopped people from staying positive and indulging in the arts to find some escape from the wild world around us. In times like these, we all could use a pick-me-up. The small local business owners, upbeat comical designs, spark a larger conversation about times of stress and seemingly contradictory consumer habits. Anita Holman has a story. Eduardo Salinas Garcia is a 21-year-old artist in South Central LA. He owns Eduardo Nut. That's an online store. I started a painting hobby as well during quarantine, late September, early October. You DM Eduardo, you tell him what you want him to paint, and he paints it on a canvas and mails it to you. As an art artist myself, I thought painting would be kind of cool to branch out to. So now I paint every day. <laughs> At Eduardo Nut, he also sells clothing with his very own designs on them. 
Usually bright colors and animated pop art. Eduardo hopes this helps to fight the god-awful pandemic blues. I guess the vibes when the pandemic started or during the pandemic was very like, I know we're going through like a really bad time, but it wouldn't hurt to see like some like positive creativity around. Art in general could like help throughout your day. It could be kind of like, oh, I'm, I'm looking at this hoodie right now and it's giving me like some positive vibes. He describes his clothing art as kawaii. That means lovely, lovable, adorable, or cute in Japanese. Clothing is like, it gives you like the kawaii vibes or like a very happy vibe. Especially welcome during these tough times of COVID. Dr. Lars Perner is an expert in consumer habits. He teaches at USC's Marshall School of Business. He says people might buy happy art now as a kind of compensation for what we're all going through. Maybe it's a little bit of an uplift for, uh, you know, what's seeming a bit dreary here with COVID and being isolated. It, it could be a small indulgence that people are allowing themselves. Perner adds, we use clothing to express ourselves and possibly attract others. He says that working on Zoom gives you a chance to change what you would normally wear, to try new things maybe brighter colors. And on Zoom, the most important piece of clothing is the top, which just happens to be what sells best at Eduardo Nut. I think the strawberry one creates the most conversations. Eduardo Salinas Garcia says people use his art to connect with others. So the almond milk and the strawberry milk have this like very sad look on them because they're, they're on the floor and they're spilled. And my friend told me that her coworker noticed it. And the coworker was like, oh, that's me. I, I guess it, it initiates those small conversations, as I said earlier, and make people like relate to the milk cartons. People often identify with the spunky characteristics of Eduardo's art and use that as a stepping stone to relate to others. Basically, the milk cartons have like their own little personalities. So like when someone buys uh, clothing, they tell me like, oh, I really like this strawberry milk carton because it has hoops and I like I really like hoops or like as um I like these big eyelashes. And they tell and people tell me like how some of the milk cartons reflect on them or kind of like their personalities can match. And that I try to make each milk carton with a different personality, different traits and people kind of react differently to each one and compare themselves to that. Customers of the shop, like Randy Vargas, take advantage of this aspect, showing them off wherever they can. His milk designs are simple and cute, but there is not much I can talk about it because you would have to see it for yourself. It's a design that you would want to have either in your clothing or as a sticker somewhere in the room. I've always wondered why, like, how can someone look at a blank canvas and just think of, like, hey, you know, I'm going to create something amazing. Eduardo says he just hopes to encourage people to tap into their own creativity. Pandemic or not, he just hopes to make the world a better place. In the pandemic, I feel like that's truly, like, essential for mental health-wise. Just because, like, some people may be trapped in their thoughts or, like, with COVID, there's a lot, like, incidents happening within family, friends, school, and and someone might not know what to do with all that stress. I feel like art kind of helps you mentally and emotionally. After the year we've all just had, Eduardo's story reminds us not only to find our own outlet, but to use it to connect with others. Remember to take care of yourself. For Annenberg Media, I'm Anita Tiara Holman. Many majors have been affected by the COVID-19 pandemic. For performance-based majors, it is taking a different toll because they are no longer able to feed off of each other or an audience. Here's Pilar Lee with a piece about why musical theater majors continue to study even though the future of the industry is unknown. Silence falls. Cue music. Curtains rise. Lights hit the stage. A whole world opens up and you are transported into the show. Musical theater is an art form like no other. For USC sophomore Tala Barbarous, studying musical theater was a path that would combine all of her passions. I've always been in the arts. I've been playing piano since I was five years old, doing ballet since I was three, and then singing since I was eight. 
when it came time to choose my major, I just sat with myself and I thought, what combines singing, acting, and dancing? And I was like, oh, musical theater. It was just the love of those three disciplines that drove me to study musical theater. Sophomore musical theater major, Muna Chimso Muna Mbezwe, found the art form through defining moments that captivated him. I think it stemmed from a desire to perform in three different ways that I had encountered at different points in my life. And I just loved the feeling of being on the stage and people knowing what I did there and people seeing me after the show and being like, oh, how did you do this? And, you know, you get to be someone else and learn all these new things. In early 2020, the coronavirus pandemic took hold in the States and across the world. With that came the closing of doors and stages throughout the country, forcing students to continue their studies online. Professor and head of music and musical theater at the Thornton School of Music, Karen Parks, sees this as an opportunity for her students to not only thrive, but to find themselves. I've heard this from others, other of my colleagues who say, well, you know, things change and we have to have them change with the times. I think we have to listen. I don't think we need to have them or make them do anything, but be who they are. And they're just finding out a little earlier who they really are and where their passions lie. I think we just need to listen and be open to all those possibilities, introduce it to, to our students, and then allow them to decide how they want to represent themselves to be and support them in it. With the daunting question of what comes next, lurking around the industry, musical theater majors are now having to sit down and ask themselves, why am I still doing this? Mbezwe shares his response. I'm still doing this because I feel like if I can survive this, I can survive anything. And, you know, musical theater as a field that is so packed with so much talent and with such little availability sometimes, as it seems, you can feel like it's really always survive and then thrive. You know, you got to work that... that um, you know, busboy, waiting tables, running to the auditions, that waitress life, <laughs> you know. Some of USC's musical theater majors came together to create the stunning film Principles of Progeny, which is a part of the Movement It Continues project. The film, according to Mbezwe's Daily Trojan article, explores the two-dimensional legacy of enslavement and colonialization of Black and non-Black peoples. The student-produced production showcases the contemporary and historic lenses of black excellence through song, storytelling, and dance. Barbara Ruse realizes that her reason for staying in the major is much bigger than herself. It became very apparent when a lot of the racial issues have been resurfaced in America that the arts can play a role in solving that. And that's exactly what the film that we did was about, was just resurfacing and hashing out the things that are happening and saying, no, we can't just keep posting a black screen and being okay, that's it. There's a lot of people who feel like it's an optional thing and that your job as an artist is, you know, like tap dance. But like, to me and a lot of people, it's way more than just putting on a show, but it's teaching people, educating people, bringing people together who normally would not be together. Even if it takes a while to get back to Broadway, there's no stopping musical theater majors from finding new ways to share their gifts. It's not just about theater. It's about something much bigger. It's about changing the world. And since the world still needs a lot of changing, the world still needs artists. For Annenberg Media, I am Pilar Lee. As a result of the pandemic, opera students and professionals alike have had to dance with the possibility of quitting a centuries-old art form. Liza Monasibian has more on how they're feeling after a year of being away from the spotlight. That's Blake Stevenson, a USC junior in the Thornton School of Music studying vocal arts and opera. He's rehearsing for his upcoming performance of a scene from Così Fan Tutte to be streamed on Zoom. Blake chose to keep singing virtually during the pandemic, even though it meant he would have no in-person lessons or performances. I, I think I'm in it because at the end of the day, I'm a performer. But in what felt like a lost year, 
it can be hard to see yourself improving as a vocalist and performer. The lack of performance had been eating away at me slowly and slowly over time, and it's not something you notice until it's been 12 months and you haven't given a live performance. And it's like, you look back and you're like, whoa. Like, as much as making videos and as much as putting yourself out there on the internet can be cool, it's, it's just not the same. This uncertainty spiraled out of control and made Blake even more apathetic toward his studies. And I couldn't tell if I was getting better or if I was like degrading and I couldn't really, I, I couldn't really know. It was just sort of a downward cycle in terms of like neglecting the art form and sounding bad and not enjoying my performance. You know, that relationship just kind of built in momentum and momentum and, and tumbled and tumbled. But just like students, professionals had emotional heartbreaks too. My challenge has been motivation because all of my jobs got canceled. I was going to be singing at the Metropolitan Opera. I had concerts with uh, soprano Renee Fleming in three different cities. Rod Gilfrey, a USC professor for the vocal arts and opera department, had jobs lined up months in advance when he got a phone call that ruptured the stability of his performance career. On my way to the airport, this was like last February, on my way to the airport, I got a call saying, no, we can't, I had to cancel it. So, and that was a huge, it was a big, big recital. I was really disappointed. And I thought, okay, well, you know, this is not going to go on forever. And then one by one, these things got canceled, 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 canceled. So uh, I was like, why, why, why practice? What am I, what am I working toward? This doubt was also felt by Blake who started losing interest in his classes and felt himself questioning his role in the classical music world. No disrespect to classical voice, but because classical voice wasn't really the, the medium that gave me the most bang for my buck while in quarantine, I started to migrate into other things. So I started getting online and learning about animation, learning about starting a business and like managerial stuff. I learned about how to make clothes. But he always felt an internal pull toward opera that not even the pandemic could get in the way of. And Blake was determined to make it work. But when there is life in it, when there is acting context, when there is purpose and you really feel like you can close your eyes and you're, you're on stage and you're, you're singing with these imaginary surroundings and the scene, that's when it's like, it doesn't matter if it's on person or it's digital, like, that's when I can really like thrive. This passion for opera had turned into Blake's way of expressing and communicating his resilience, not only as a performer, but as a person. The reason I'm sticking with opera and the way I, I still believe opera is, is worth pursuing is because I think it is a really spectacular storytelling method. But storytelling is not new to opera. It's been around for centuries. It has survived world wars, cultural shifts, and it will survive through this pandemic because people like Blake have chosen to keep it alive. I needed like performance more than I realized. And performance for an online audience only gets you so far. To exist as a human being, I need to be in front of like other human beings. Trying out a song, telling a story, moving my face, even if it's choral, like that's cool, but I mean, but I mean not really. Like like there's there's no substitute for like dramatic vocal music like opera, like musical theater. I learned that like there's no substitute for that, even, even online, which is why I'm hoping this ends pretty soon. The pandemic has shifted all of our lives. It's okay to have experienced moments of self-doubt along the way, moments where once normal routine or passion became so difficult or frustrating to do that you wanted to quit. For Blake, pushing through those moments wasn't easy, but it was well worth it. For Annenberg Media, I'm Liza Monasavian. Thanks for tuning in. This is a four-part podcast. Make sure to check out the other episodes in our series, Portraits of a New Normal. This podcast is produced by USC Annenberg Media, a student-run newsroom of the USC Annenberg School for Communication and Journalism.
A huge thanks to our radio faculty, Tina Rubio, Edward Lifson, and Shirley Jahad. And a special shout out to our tech whiz, Sebastian Gruba. We miss them all dearly and wish we can give them all a big hug very soon. And if all goes well, we'll be back next fall in Studio B in the Media Center, where we hope you'll tune in to our award-winning show from where we are. And congratulations to all the graduates. Stay safe out there and have an awesome summer. For ARN, I'm Valeria Diaz. I'm Johnny Dorsal. And I'm Fernando Cienfuegos. All right, show's over. Put your mask back on.